So when I was growing up in the faith, we would sing this song, and the song was this. Happy, 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 happy are the people whose God is the Lord. Anyone heard that song? I've heard it, Matt, but never like that. Yeah, I get it. I know my gifts, that's why I don't sing. <laughs> so that song is from the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 144, verse 15. And that Psalm, 144, verse 15, the word happy there, it's a translation of the Hebrew word esher. I want to show you something that I think is a reflection in the translations of Scripture that is actually coming from our culture, okay? The Hebrew word esher has not changed one bit. So if you go back 1611, King James Version, that verse is translated just like this. Happy is that people whose God is the Lord. So Esher is translated happy. Go forward a couple hundred years, 1898, Young's literal translation. It says, oh, the happiness of the people whose God is Jehovah. Still Esher, same word, happiness, happy happiness. Now 100 years forward, 1971, New Living Translation. Now how's it translated? Joyful, was happy, was happy. All of a sudden, joyful indeed are those whose God is the Lord. How about my translation, 2001 ESV? Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. What happened there? Same Hebrew word, Esher. But there was a decision made at some point in the last 50, 60, 70 years to say, you know what, happy, let's not translate it happy anymore. Let's translate that word joyful. You know what, joyful is actually too happy as well. Let's make it blessed, all right? So there's a shift. It's almost as if there is this idea inside the church that we're not supposed to be happy. We can be joyful, but not happy. We can be blessed, but not happy. The biggest change in my life on this, because I used to believe that, was about six years ago, I think, I read a book by Randy Alcorn. You guys know who Randy Alcorn is? He's amazing. So Randy Alcorn was defending the unborn. And while he was defending the unborn, he ended up in a lawsuit for his defense of the unborn. Because he lives in Oregon, it was against him. He lost this lawsuit, and so he refused to pay it. Well, they said, we are going to garnish your wages. So Randy Alcorn, who has sold millions of books, Randy Alcorn said, fine, I will work from this day forward for minimum wage because you can't garnish the wages of someone making minimum wage. And he said, not a cent will go to support the killing of babies. Like he's unbelievable, right? He, he has turned down tens of millions of dollars. Uh, the, the statute of limitations was like 20 years on it. It came, he said, you know what? God has so blessed me, I'm gonna continue to work for minimum wage. 
This guy's a serious man. Whatever I have read of Randy Alcorn's is unbelievable. Well, I read a book of his called Happiness. It transformed my thinking. What has happened to us as Christians? Like something was amiss. And then I read a bunch of other books as well, scientific on happiness. Here's what I think happened inside the church. I think we won World War II. And after World War II, Americans got everything we thought we could want, right? We have cars now. You can drive anywhere you want. Paved roads. Everyone can own their own car. We had entertainment being beamed straight into our homes. We're the most powerful nation on earth, right? We've got food, like an abundance of food. We came up with the TV dinner. Like, yes, in front of entertainment, in our home, with air conditioning, eating a television dinner. Woohoo! right? So we had everything you could imagine, but we weren't happy. So that kind of attitude, I think, crept into the church. Maybe God doesn't want us happy. Maybe it's just hashtag blessed instead. And so we missed out, I think, on a truth of scripture that God, Psalm 144, 15, God wants you and me to be happy. That's what he wants, okay? That happiness is not a circumstance thing. Happiness is a me problem that I got to figure it out. Right, So we are starting a series in Philippians. We began it last week. If you weren't here, you got to get that because that is the center, the core of where happiness comes from. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, how it invades this town called Philippi, and it reaches to anyone, anywhere. No strata, no race, no economic difference changes the fact that the gospel will transform your life. You got to start there, okay? And now we're just beginning to work through what I call Philippians, the happiest book on earth. But let me warn you about happiness. And this comes from the author, Viktor Frankl. He wrote a book everyone should read, Man's Search for Meaning. Brilliant, unbelievable book. One of the best books I've ever read. In that book, he says this, success, like happiness, cannot be pursued. It must ensue. And it only does so as the unintended side effect. Success will follow you precisely because you had forgotten to think about it. Happiness and success are like that. They're like those dot drawings that you can't see until you don't look directly at it and then you see it. That's what it is. So Philippians is like this manual that is saying to you and me, the focus may not be happiness, but the byproduct of Philippians will be you and I will realize Psalm 144 verse 15, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. And we get clue number one today. And as we go through Philippians, never forget where the author of Philippians is sitting when he writes this book. Where's he at? Prison possibly to get his head cut off. And he writes the most joyful, happy book ever. So either Paul is insane or he has tapped into a secret. And I choose the latter. I think Paul has something that is so brilliant and amazing that joy, happiness, and Jesus are friends. They come together. And so today, the message is real simple. It's happiness has friends. Clue number one, happiness has friends.
Check it out, chapter one, verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins by just saying, hi, saints. What's a saint? Is it Hall of Famers that every 10 years the church gets together and we vote who should be a saint and because you get voted in, you're in the Hall of Fame and you get a hospital named after you or a holy day named after you, right? So it's St. Matt's Day. Everybody wears collared shirts, drives Volkswagens and gets preachy for a day, right? Is that what it is? Because you're this kind of different strata, is that what a saint is? No. A saint is any and every believer in Jesus Christ. Every person that has done Romans 10, verse nine, they have confessed with their mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believed in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. They're saints. If you've done that, you are a saint. You can put it on your business card, Saint Matt, right? And listen carefully, you are a saint, not because of what you do, but because of who you are. Do you understand that? Let me try to illustrate it. Does anyone here know who Prince Philip is? The Duke of Edinburgh, right? He's passed away. He was the husband of the Queen of England, right? So he's a prince, he's a duke. He is known internationally as the prince of the gaffes because the man had no filter. He would just say things. You're like, I cannot believe you just said that. You can Google it. You can look at it. They're hilarious. Some of them are just stunning. This one is stunning. I just went, you said what? So he's at this big convention. He's talking to people. Cameras are rolling. He's talking to a 13-year-old boy, 13 years old. He asked the 13-year-old boy, hey, what would you like to be when you grow up? The little boy said, I would like to be an astronaut. I dream of growing up to be an astronaut. Prince Philip, you'll never be an astronaut. You're too fat. <laughs> yeah, you're just like, oh, dude, no, right? That's him. Listen, he does that over and over. Does that change anything about his princeness? Nope. Does he cease to be the Duke of Edinburgh? Nope. Because it's who he is, not what he does. Okay? Presidents don't cease to be presidents when they do something unpresidential because they're the president, right? Diplomats don't cease to be diplomats when they do something undiplomatic. Princes don't cease to be princes when they do something unprincely. Christians don't cease to be Christians, don't cease to be saints when they don't act like it because it's not what you do. It is what has been done for you that you and I are saints based on one thing, because Jesus Christ purchased you with his death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus Christ is holding on to you, and the Bible is going to promise he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, so you don't cease ever being a saint. Isn't that amazing? Right? I am Saint Matt. Say it. 
Not that I'm Saint Matt. Say your name. Say, everyone, I want you to do this. Say Saint and your name. Do it right now. Did you smile? Yeah, right? You're like, whoa, I'm a saint. All right. This is a secret. Hold on to that. Philippians is going to say, part of happiness is retrain your brain to think biblically. Think biblically about what you are. You are a saint. Smile and be happy, saints of Jesus Christ. Right? That's how he begins. Number two. Verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Secondly, Paul says this. He gives thanks for partners. What we're hearing in this little section is we're eavesdropping in on a pastor, a church planter that is thinking about the church that he planted, thinking about the people there. And as he thinks and remembers the people in the church, he just is overwhelmed with joy and thanksgiving for them. Why? Because they were kind. We're going to find that out in this book. They were nice. They cared for him, right? If you're going to plant a church, it's sure awesome if really kind, good people come, right? Oh, man. Edgewater's the only church that I know intimately and well. And when I think about this church, I'm always amazed how kind and how fantastic you guys are. Because here's what I know. I push buttons and I kind of, kind of push the envelope and I can be a little bit rough. And yet you guys come back and you're still nice to me. I'm pretty sure in heaven, you will get a crown. God will be like, oh, you went to Edgewater? Crown for you. You put up with Matt? I can barely put up with him. Wow, you get a crown for doing that, right? This is what Paul is saying when he thinks about them. And check out carefully three and four. All my remembrance, always, every prayer with joy. When Paul thought about the church at Philippi, every memory he had, every prayer he gave was one of thanksgiving and one of joy. Isn't that amazing? When you think about Edgewater and every person that you know at Edgewater, is every thought of the people at Edgewater, is it always of all joy for every single person here? Look around, you can look around right now. Is there anyone in here that you are not thankful for? Anyone in here that maybe hurts you or said something or slandered or wasn't nice to you, right? Like this is an amazing thing. How about the person sitting right next to you? Is every thought of them one of joy? They've never been unkind to you. They've never done anything ugly to you. They've never had a Prince Philip gaffe towards you, right? If you're saying yes to all that, they're a complete stranger then. Because what I've noticed about relationship is this, like the distance when you don't know somebody really well, man, from a distance, you can be like, wow, they're so awesome. Or you kind of idolize people, admire them. But the more you get to know them, the more you're like, oh, wait, they're human. And they get even closer and you're like, oh, you become critical of them. And then finally you're like, I don't even like that person. You ostracize them. That's the normal cycle of relationship. Paul is saying though, I looked at this whole church and every single person in this church, man, I gave 
joy for them. Paul's given us secret in happiness right here. It's amazing. He is choosing to only remember the good stuff. Did people in this church hurt Paul? Were you here last week? Right, he was tortured, beaten with rods, put in stocks, and thrown into a septic by a member of this church. But guess what he chooses to do? I'm choosing not to remember that stuff. And because of that, he is thankful. Now, that sounds Pollyannish. Yes, it does. And she was a happy girl. You can choose that or you can be Eeyore, right? Oh, you guys go and have fun. I'll just stay here and be miserable, all right? Well, Matt, that's easier said than done. How do I do that? Here's how. It's verse five. Because, why did I do this? Why did I choose to remember only good stuff? Because of your partnership in the gospel. I love that. I think there are two big ways you're gonna live in relationship with people. Number one, you're gonna keep score. Or number two, you're gonna catch the vision. You're gonna either keep score. Kids are really good at this. I have five kids, they're brilliant. I love each one of them. They're amazing to me. I love talking with them, I love hanging out with them, but I had to raise them. And there were times that my girls were little. I'd hear one of my girls crying. I'd go out and say, why are you crying? And they would say, so-and-so hit me. I'd go find so-and-so. I'd say to so-and-so, why did you hit your sister? I knew the next two words. What are they? Because she. What's that called? Keeping score. I evened it. She did this to me. I just wished one of my kids, when I said, why did you hit your sister? If they would have replied, because I'm a sinner. It'd have been a free car, man. Yeah, you got it, right? That's keeping score, keeping scores. Okay, I'm gonna get you, I'm gonna find a chance to get back at you. When you keep score, everybody loses. But there's another way to live. It's a way that Paul lives right here. It's, he caught the vision. There's something bigger and more important to live for than remembering all the cuts or all the wounds or all the bad stuff, and I'm choosing not to remember it. I caught the vision. Great athletic teams where they have coaches and guys with egos and all these things, and they put hours and hours with each other. You know there's lots of wounds there and lots of hurt and lots of pains, but they choose to put those behind themselves because they say, we got a bigger vision to live for, a Super Bowl, a national championship, a World Series. That's what great teams do. They catch the vision. Maybe you've been involved in some kind of a project that was big and massive and gathers yeah, wounds. And yes, there's people don't always treat you the best way, but you put it all behind you because the project is bigger than your problems. That's what Paul's saying here. We got the gospel. We got this vision. That stuff is pennies. I'm not gonna argue over it. We got people that need salvation, that need to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's so important. We got marriages that are fractured and dissolving. We got to see those brought underneath the lordship of Jesus Christ. We got kids living in homes that are chaotic and full of drugs and bad stuff. And we got to see those homes brought under the shalom of Jesus. Are you kidding? Why are we fighting about that stuff? That's what Paul is saying here. Let's catch the vision. Let's live some, for something bigger, right? That's it. So when you catch the vision, you put away the score, 
card. You, you say, I, 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 I'm not remembering that anymore. That's what Paul does here. I got partners. I'm thankful for every single person in here and what God's doing through them, through the community, because we need every hand on deck. Brilliant. And then, maybe one of my favorite verses in the Bible, verse six. I have it underlined. This is a brand new Bible. First time I've used it today. The reason why I have a brand new Bible is I could no longer read my old Bible. This one has a larger font. Pretty soon I'll have one of those giant kind of Bibles. I'll be like, oh, well, let's see here. I got a back problem from holding it. So I, I underline this verse because it's such a great verse. Listen to verse six. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul says this, he's got God confidence. I have a confidence in God. Do you know that God is different than you and me? Maybe the best way to demonstrate this is go look at a man's garage. What is it full of? Half-finished projects. Some of them dating to the Paleolithic age, right? Like, I'm gonna get to that. Uh. If you don't believe me, I did this test years ago when, when Craigslist was there. There's no Facebook marketplace. And I typed a global search for the whole site. I just typed in the word wife. I know it sounds dirty. This was my goal. Because all these ads came up and the ads, what they said was this. It said, selling because my wife said, get it out of the garage. Thousands of them. My favorite one was a dude on a motorcycle, a picture of a dude on a motorcycle. And the caption said this. My wife said, it's either the motorcycle or me. Then underneath it, he said, take your pick. <laughs> if you and I could get into God's garage, there are no half-finished projects. That's the promise of verse six. He was so confident when he thought about that church, people at all kinds of levels, good levels, high levels, low levels. He goes, I am sure of this, that God who began a good work in each one of you will be faithful to complete it, to take us from a mess to maturity to mission, from salvation through sanctification to service, that God will not leave any half-finished projects. God confident. Yeah. Well, Matt, if that's true, if God's going to do it all and I don't have anything to do about it, fantastic. I'm headed to Vegas. Mardi Gras. Margaritaville. The Wonder Blur. What a name for a bar, huh? What should we call this thing? Oh, it's all blurred to me, man. I don't know. <laughs> What about that, man? I mean, come on, is that true? Okay, let me give you some Bible on that. Heard a guy named Jonah? God said something to the prophet Jonah. He said, Jonah, go to Nineveh, go there and preach a message for me. What did Jonah do? He went to Vegas, got on a boat, gambled. Literally, he gambled, drew the shortest straw and they threw him overboard. Got swallowed by a whale, 
Three days in the digestive juices of a whale. After three days, he gets barfed onto the land, probably had skin diseases and problems for the rest of his life, probably never grew another hair on his head because of dissolved hair follicles. Ends up where? Nineveh. Exactly where God wanted him, right? But read the end of Jonah. It's one of the most miserable endings to any book in the Bible. He is depressed, he is angry at God, and he's suicidal. And then the book just ends, right? God got him where he wanted him, finished the work he wanted, but man, was Jonah miserable on the journey. It's maybe like this. You ever taken a family vacation, right? Get your kids in there. Lowell Anderson told me, if you take your kids, it's not a vacation, it's a trip. Yeah, that's true, okay. If you take your wife only, it's a vacation, right? So you go on a family trip and you get everybody in the car and one of your kids is just miserable. They don't wanna go, they're throwing their fits, they're miserable, they're Squidward or whatever the dude is from the Squarepants show, you know, they're, they're that guy, just yeah. So they're the whole way down. Where does everybody end up? Wherever you're at, Six Flags or Disneyland or whatever it is, they all end up there. But one was miserable on the whole trip. Listen, God's ship of salvation, the Bible is sure of this, it will make it to port. The only question is, are you gonna enjoy the journey or are you gonna be puking over the edge? Are you gonna enjoy the journey? So what Paul is arguing for us and what Paul is saying is, listen, listen, enjoy the journey. Do it God's way. Follow him, get close to Jesus, stay in fellowship, be grateful, choose to rejoice. Like he's just gonna give us tool after tool after tool to say, you can enjoy the journey. Don't be miserable. Don't end up like Jonah, angry and upset because you can be happy. And I think one of the best ways to keep a God confidence in your life is to memorize the promises of scripture. You know, begin with the great one, verse six of Philippians. I am confident, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So when Satan comes and says, you're terrible, God never did anything and you're not gonna make it, you just quote Philippians 1 verse six and you find yourself smiling, right? Now Paul ends this little section with some brilliant advice. Check this out, verse eight. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer, an apostolic prayer for a church, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is the heart of this apostolic prayer? The heart of it is that the saints, you and I, that we have a holy, ferocious, growing love. Did you see that? I'm praying that your love might abound more and more and more. Anyone in here need more love? Or are you like, no, I got enough, Matt. I am full of it. Yes, you are. <laughs> right? We all, 
every one of us needs to grow. And so let's dissect this really quickly because there's four parts to this prayer for our love to abound. Number one is this, because I want your love to abound with knowledge. Love is supposed to know some things. What does knowledge say? Knowledge means that there are facts, right? That there are truths. And if there are facts and truths, that means conversely, there's lies and deception. Knowledge means that there's good and there's bad. There's moral and there's immoral. So Paul here prays that a believer's love has knowledge. Today, I don't think love has knowledge anymore. I think if you look at 2022 American definition of love, you know what it is? Love is absolute affirmation. That we are called, if we're to quote unquote 2022 love people, it means we affirm whatever they decide. It's, oh, I applaud you. You are so brave. Oh, that's so strong of you. Oh, wonderful for you. Oh, good for you. Whatever people decide, whatever crazy thing that they're doing, we just say, oh, that's awesome. But is that love? No, what is that actually? It's selfishness. Because I care more about me, what you think about me, than what is best for you. That's what that is. And so we are being fed a dishonest kind of love today that's not helping people, that's not true. That you and I are supposed to have this love that has knowledge. And we need this love that has knowledge because have you noticed something about people? Some of them are stupid, right? So I got this graph, I found this a while back and I knew I was gonna use it at some point. And what it is, it's talking about the self-control of females versus males. So notice what I've circled there though. The self-control of a nine-year-old or a 10-year-old female is exactly the same as a 25-year-old male adult, right? I just cracked up. Is that crazy or what? 25-year-old men acting like 10-year-old girls. I can't go to school today because Jenny doesn't like me. Okay, what do they need? Knowledge. I can't tell you how often, just this week, I sat with a young man and I said, bro, you have got to stop sleeping with your girlfriend. You are ruining whatever chances of a holy good marriage down the road. And if she's not gonna be your wife, you're taking something from her future husband. Bro, stop smoking pot. It's not helping you. Quit looking at porn. It's destroying the heart that God gave you. It is a cancer that's destroying you. Quit playing video games till 3.30 a.m. and being a zombie at work the next day. Quit jumping from job to job to job. Stick for a job for a while, learn what you need to learn there, and then graduate right? What is that? That's truth. Because people need it. And one of the worst things I ever heard in my life was early on at Edgewater. I was walking with this young man and he was doing some stuff and I didn't confront him on him. And later on that stuff came to bite him. And he came back to me and this is what he said to me. He said, Matt, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me about this stuff? And I want to say, well, it was kind of awkward and it was kind of weird and I didn't know how to do it, right? right? I had all the excuses. But at the end of the day, I wanted him to like me more than 
I wanted to tell him the truth. It wasn't a holy, ferocious, growing love. I don't wanna hear that again, right? Now, there's a good way to tell people knowledge, and that's why Paul says, grow in knowledge and, what's the next word? Discernment. Discernment is knowing how to tell people the truth in a way that is palatable, in a way that they can accept it, in a way that they can learn from it, right? That's what discernment is. You know, the best example I have of discernment in telling people knowledge in a loving way, it's Mark Scudstad. Mark Scudstad has a God-given gift to tell people truth in such a way that it's kind and it's compassionate. It doesn't make you want to defend yourself. It makes you say, you're right. It breaks you. My prayer is, Lord, help me to learn from him. Help me do things in a way that's discerning like that. The Bible says this, let your speech be always seasoned with grace. No matter what I'm saying to somebody, there better be a seasoning of grace in there when I'm talking to them, right? So a chip, what makes a chip really good? A little salt. What makes a chip terrible? A cup of salt. Discernment tells you which one, right? So when I'm talking with somebody, I'm supposed to season it, not dump a cup of salt on their head. I got to be careful of that because sometimes I can be overzealous. Discernment allows me to kind of, all right, how do I do this? And it's never to be like, I want to be right and I want to show you. In fact, if you want to go tell people the truth all the time, you're probably the worst one to go do it. The people that should be doing it are those that are like, man, I want to do this well. I want to be really careful. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to say in a way that's wrong. Jesus, help me do this well. You're probably the right one to do it because you'll go in with knowledge and discernment. Not trying to be right, not trying to make your point, but trying to point them on the way everlasting. I tell people when I do marriage counseling, I say, listen, you get one time every six weeks. So, if one of you is one that's really good at keeping score, start writing it out then. Just write it out and then pray over it. And what you'll see is you'll get some repetition in there. Those are the important ones. And once every six weeks, grab your spouse, go out to eat, get a sitter for the kids, sit down, have a great time, and then say, all right, here's some things. You don't do it every six minutes because guys have a word for that. And it's not a good word. It doesn't help right? The Bible talks about a constant dripping that drives you insane. So you'd rather live on the roof than inside the house. You don't want that, right? So it's careful. It's discernment. With relationships with men, I always say this, have I made a deposit? They're like a bank account. Have I made a deposit in their life so now I can make a withdrawal? Because people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Have I demonstrated this person that I care about them, that I'm not just coming down on them, that I want them to thrive and to flourish in life? Have I deposited well in their life? Those, those are discerning things, okay? That's discernment. Now, number three, brilliant. This one is worth the price of admission. He says this, so that, why do you do all this? So that you may approve what is excellent. I just put it, hold the positive. When it comes to relationship with people, what is our natural desire? Is it to hold on to the positive things? Or do we remember much better all the negative things? 
the hurts, the wounds, the gaffes, the unkindness, the ugly moments, the failures, the dropped towel, right? We are programmed to remember the bad about people. And what we do then is during our day, when your mind is able to free spin for a second, you're driving, you're mowing, you're doing something like that. What we do then is we replay all the hurts and the wounds and the ugly in our heads. And we do it over and over and over, day after day after day towards that person until we pound that into the DNA of our soul. And they cease to be people anymore. They become the thing that pained us. That's what they become. We demonize them. And it is the weakness of the human mind. This is what we do. So Paul says, I am disciplining myself to approve the excellent. The reason? I want to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The word pure there is a brilliant word. It literally means in the Greek, no wax. And it came from the ancient sculpturers who would take this big piece of marble and they'd chip away at it and they'd make a Greek god Adonis out of it or something. Well, let's say you bought that and you had this massive marble and you worked for months, maybe a year making this sculpture and it was gonna pay for a lot of stuff. But then you're doing the finishing touches on the nose, getting the nostril just right and you accidentally break off the nose. That's a bummer, right? That's a massive investment. So what do you do? They had this wax that they could make a wax nose out of. And when you glazed over it, you could not tell it wasn't marble. And so they would do that and they would sell it to somebody and they'd take it and they'd put it in their garden and they'd have a big party and the sun would come out and then everyone would be like, is your sculpture sick? Because his nose is running. <laughs> oh, he doesn't have a nose, right? What they would do to certify that there was no flaw, no hypocrisy in a piece of art is they would stamp it with this word that means no wax. It's pure, no hypocrisy, no fakeness in it. Why do we do that? Here's why we approve what's excellent. Because whatever you are thinking about, whatever you are grinding over, one day will come out. Do you know it? When the heat's up, when the sun's up, it's gonna come out, right? The Bible says, out of the abundance, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If I'm thinking about something about someone over and over and over, when they come up in a conversation, guess what's gonna happen? Oh, I'm gonna unload. Oh, you don't know about that guy. Oh, let me tell you about him. Oh, and guess what? The moment I do that, I pull a grenade and I throw it into all my relationships because they get exploded. Now I can't go to holidays, why? Because that person's there. Now I can't do this road trip because that person's there. Now I can't enjoy that. Why? Because that person's there. It explodes all these other relationships. So Paul is giving us a massive secret right here. Don't do what is natural to us, where we hammer on people, where we make them into the pain that they caused us. Do the opposite. Approve those things that are excellent. It's brilliant. Retrain your brain. Matt, I have tried that. I cannot do that. It's impossible. I agree. This takes the power of God's spirit and one of the most practical, powerful words of Jesus. So let me read to you Matthew 5, This is the way that you retrain your brain. Listen to what Jesus says, Matthew 5, But I say unto you, 
Love your, the people that have hurt you, slandered you, lied about you, right? Your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. You want to retrain your brain? Three things for that person. Three things for that person that your brain is going over and over and pounding at and just wasting time. Three things. Here's what you Number one, you bless them. You wake up in the morning before your brain has a chance to start hammering that stuff. You wake up in the morning and you say, Jesus, bless him. Bless her. Whatever blessings you want for your life, you pray it on this person. You bless them. Number two, you do good to them. When they come up in a conversation, if you can't meet with them, if you can't bake them a pie or something, number two, when they come up in a conversation and maybe someone is putting them down, you do the opposite. You do good to them. Oh, that might be true, but you know what? Man, they sure helped me over here or they sure did this right over there or they are an image bearer of God. Let's be careful. And then thirdly, you pray for them. Whatever you would want in your life, God, I pray for his marriage right now. I pray for her marriage right now. I pray for their kids right now. I pray for his job or his business or his success. You pray and watch and see what happens to your heart. Something fundamental and incredible switches inside of your heart. You no longer pound them. You start approving the things that are excellent in them. And man, it sets you free. That is one of the most powerful verses I have ever practiced myself when it comes to people. It is brilliant. And then lastly, last fruit of this love, filled with the fruit of righteousness. You live righteously. I just put it like this. You preach what you practice. And yes, I reverse that. Here's why. There is nothing that will rob you of happiness more than being a hypocrite. Do you know that? It's been proved now. The American Psychological Society, the APA, they said this. That wouldn't be right. The American Psychological Association, the APA, they did this study on living authentically because that's the big buzzword, right? I'm living authentically. I'm living my authentic life. So they tried to figure out, does living your authentic life bring happiness? They said, no. Here's what they said, and I'm quoting from them. You can Google this. Happy people choose an identity congruent with their deepest convictions. You want to be happy? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, your deepest convictions are godly. That your old heart, Ezekiel 36, 25, was pulled out of you and you're given a brand new heart and you're given God's spirit. And your deepest convictions are righteous convictions. And when you begin to live in congruence with that, man, it brings you and me happiness. And I can read these verses. And when I read them, and I think about them. I know I fail. I know I need help. And whenever a Christian needs help, guess where you go? To Christ. And so as we take communion today, I have a simple prayer. Jesus, Help the saints of Edgewater. Help me. Feed me today so that I can live Philippians 1 through 11. That I can live in a God confidence.
so I can live with a holy, ferocious, growing love for the people I'm connected with. 